church to this building this morning. Good to be back with you guys after a, a week off, a little bit of a hiatus of sorts to go meet our new niece, whose name is Anise, which is kind of funny. Um, my sister-in-law doesn't think that's funny at all, so <laughs> I'll use that joke with you guys when she's not in the room. Um, but seriously, I'm glad to be back with you guys. Thankful to Jason uh, for stepping in last week. Uh, into the lion's den to tackle that passage um, this morning. Uh, we, we have a shift of sorts, and it's going to be interesting. Um, this week, uh, we turn from what has historically been uh, one episode after another that would fall into the category of narrative with the book of Daniel into the realm of the apocalyptic. Should be a lot of fun. If you Google it, you can even do it right now if you want to. One of the few times that I'll be more than happy for you to pull out your phone and Google and try to find a sermon on Daniel chapter 7 through 12. There are very, very few of them. Um, most churches don't want to touch the second uh, half of the book of Daniel with a 10-foot pole because it is very com complex. Um, there are a lot of muddy waters that we're going to kind of wade through, but, but the wind... Uh, is, is worth it, I think. And I think you'll see that even as we come out of this morning. Um, one commentator that I read this week uh, put it this way. He said, we're essentially going from storytelling to movie watching. So we're going to get from, uh, we're going to go from narrative into the, uh, the world of visuals, you might say. And so uh, there will unquestionably be a shift to our approach uh, of interpreting the second half of the book of Daniel, but, but at the same time, very simply, the, the message remains the same. Despite appearances, God is in control. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. If we can keep that in our brain, we should be okay. Um, just a few things. Uh, when you get into apocalyptic literature as it pertains to the Bible, um, some things to keep in mind as it pertains to interpreting those types of passages of Scripture. Number one, when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're talking about an unveiling, a peeling back of the curtain to see the king, to see his throne, to see his kingdom, to see his ultimate victory over evil. We looked at this when we went through the series on the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If you were around for that, you may, <clears throat> you may remember that. Um, that was a, a walk through apocalyptic literature. This is much of the same. And so if you walk away from this series without an eyeful of the king and his glory... You missed it. You've completely missed it. Number two, because apocalyptic literature is visual, it usually involves imagery. And oftentimes in biblical apocalyptic literature, it's grotesque images, grotesque terms. Um, the, this category uh, of literature is filled with metaphor and simile. And so you've got to be super careful that you don't press things too much. The goal is not to press every single minute detail that you see uh, when you encounter these pictures in these passages of Scripture. Um, it's kind of like parable in that way. You can press a parable too much, right? And all of a sudden you miss the bigger picture of what the parable was trying to communicate in the first place. Number three, apocalyptic literature is meant to bring comfort and hope to the broken, to the hurting, to the marginalized, to the oppressed. Uh, if, you, if you can't relate to the idea that the world is not as it should be, you're not going to enjoy the rest of this book very much. It's not going to have a lot to say for you. Um, Daniel 7 through 12 is for those who know the reality of what it is to live in a broken, fallen world. 
a world filled with evil, a world filled with pain, a world filled with sadness, a world filled with hurt. So if you know something of that imperfect world, the rest of this series is unquestionably for you. And then number four, apocalyptic literature does in fact look toward the future, which makes sense, right? If the present is not as it should be, but we have to be super cautious. We have to be cautious not to hit the fast forward button in such a way that now everything is to be fulfilled in this moment in human history. Now that we've seen Hurricane Matthew tear up the East Coast, Jesus must be coming back. Or if some world ruler uh, that is not uh, living in perfect morality takes the throne, then we must be in the middle of the apocalypse. We have to be very cautious not to go there so quickly and not to seek to interpret everything we see in chapters 7 through 12 as it pertains to the second coming of Christ. There are gospel implications through these chapters of the book of Daniel. There, there, there's much to say about the life, death, and resurrection as we look at the next several weeks closing out this series. Daniel Block, in his commentary, sums up the purpose of apocalyptic literature really well. He says this. He says, The intention of apocalyptic is not to chart out God's plan for the future so future generations may draw up calendars, but to assure the present generation that perhaps contrary to appearance, God is still on the throne and that the future is firmly in his hands. That's what we've been talking about all the way up to chapter 7 thus far, right? Nothing changes in that regard. And so, without further ado, let's, let's peel back the curtain and let's see the king seated on his throne in all of his glory. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 7. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a, an interpretation that's really difficult to understand, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. That would make us really happy to know that you're leaving this place with the Bible that you'd be excited to open tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you not only for the first six chapters of this book of the Bible, but for the last six chapters of this book of the Bible. God, I pray for wisdom. I pray for clarity over the course of the coming weeks as we finish out this series. God, I pray that we would see what you want us to see in these particular chapters of this book of the Bible. God, I pray that we would get a glimpse of evil for what it truly is. It's grotesque, it's vile, it's external to us, and it's internal within us. Pray that you would help us to see King Jesus seated on his throne who will do away with sin and evil forever. God, I pray that we would walk away sobered, comforted, repentant, and encouraged this morning. Father, would you do these things by the power of your Holy Spirit? In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. All right, let's get going. We got a lot to cover. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Okay, if you're a narrative person, if you're a chronological person, right off the bat, this is going to drive you nuts. Because all of a sudden, we've hit the rewind button. All of a sudden, we're back in Babylon under the reign of the Babylonian Empire. When Belshazzar was king, remember this guy, the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5? This is prior to the Persian attack on the city under his reign. Daniel, who up to this point has been interpreting other people's dreams and visions, has a dream of his own. 
through the first six chapters, God has been delivering messages to pagan kings and kingdoms. And now he has a word for his people, a word of encouragement, a word of comfort in the midst of exile, in the midst of persecution. Second half of verse 1, then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So here's the dream itself. And I'll go and warn you, it's incredibly weird. This is a weird dream. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a super weird dream, one of those that you're embarrassed to tell people about because they're going to think you're a little loony for sharing it. I used to have this recurring dream when I was a kid that Superman was stuck under uh, the ice on the surface of a lake. And I was looking down at him, and he couldn't use his x-ray vision, of course, because he's underwater. And tears are just streaming down my face onto the ice. And Superman didn't make it. He never made it in that dream. And I would wake up just tearful and devastated. That's a weird dream, right? I feel like I just put myself on the counseling couch for a second to tell you about that. And we all have those kinds of dreams. That's what this kind of dream is that Daniel has. It's super weird. You may want to take a sip of coffee before we jump into this thing. Here we go. Verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, immediately we get a context clue. The sea was a symbol of chaos for the Israelites. The Israelites were not a seafaring people. When they had a navy under Solomon's reign, they they hired sailors from Tyre and Sidon. Remember the disciples when they got caught in the middle of a great storm with Jesus at sea? The sea is, is a picture of chaos. It's a place where evil lurks in the scriptures. This dream begins with the stirring up of the sea. We're, we're probably not going to encounter a dream filled with marshmallows and unicorns and rainbows. That's not where this thing is going in Daniel chapter 7. We should anticipate a nightmare of sorts. Verse 3, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Okay, so Daniel's about to describe, to describe these four beasts that we're going to encounter here in chapter 7. But before we take a look at the descriptions, let me just give away the ending as I see it. That way we can track a little better with what Daniel's describing as we work our way through each of these creatures. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had, had a dream. If you were around, you remember that? Uh, this great statue made up of four parts, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the belly and thigh of bronze, and the legs of iron and clay. And we talked about uh, the fact that most uh, scholars and commentators believe that the head of gold represents Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And we see that clearly, actually, in chapter 2. That the arms and chest of silver represent Medo-Persia. That the belly and thighs of bronze represent Greece. And that the legs and iron of iron and clay represent Rome. And so, and so you have this succession of empires, And the dream in chapter 2 ends, remember, with a small stone being thrown at that gargantuan statue and and bringing it tumbling to the ground with the stone representing Jesus and his eternal kingdom. Well, this morning's passage, according to most scholars, is a parallel to chapter 2. And so as we read through these descriptions here in Daniel 7, think through those four empires described in chapter 2. Verse 4, the first, the first beast was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. This lion with eagle's wings represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, the lion signifying strength, royalty, majesty, the eagle signifying speed. The wings being plucked off in verse 4 alludes to Nebuchadnezzar's humbling among the wild beasts in chapter 4. You remember that? The beast being lifted up and made to stand on two feet 
with sound mind represents Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. Remember his words at the end of chapter 4? My reason returned to me. You you get similar language here in verse 4. The mind of a man was was given to it. Moving on to verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. The second beast representing Medo-Persia with the bear signifying ferocity. The side of the beast that's raised up would then signify that the Persians were stronger than the Medes in this relationship. The three beasts signifying kings or possibly countries that Persia conquered under King Cyrus and the kings that were to follow during the height of the Persian Empire. Verse 6, after this I looked and behold another, a third beast like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast likely represents Greece, with the leopard signifying speed, the ability to to pounce quickly. The four wings also contributing to this idea of speed and agility, which makes sense when you think about the reign of Alexander the Great um, and the, the empire that he built. This was a man who conquered and Hellenized the known world at that time by the age of 32. That's pretty young. That's a pretty quick conquering. The four heads of the beast, if this is true, would then represent the dividing of Alexander's kingdom into four parts after his death. We know this to be historically true. Notice here, even in verse 6, I love this. God just keeps trickling it in from time to time. We get this sovereignty of God language. In the midst of this terrifying dream, we read these words. And dominion was given to it, to the third beast. In other words, once again, the Lord gave. Been talking about that since day one of this series, that God is seated on the throne. He is over all human rulers, human kingships. He is the ultimate king. He's not sweating it from the heavenlies. He knows what he's doing. He has everything in full control. He has his hands on the wheel. Jesus has actually taken the wheel. We can believe that to be theologically true. Verses 7 and 8 go on to say, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, that's just super weird, right? I don't want to have that dream. I'm glad my brother Daniel had it, and I can just read commentaries and kind of secondhand understand what that was about because that would terrify me. That's scarier than the clown in it. The fourth beast, if we, if we track where we've been going thus far, represents Rome, the Roman Empire, the empire in power when Jesus walked the earth, um, although there, there may actually be a multi-layered interpretation to this fourth beast, but we'll get there in, in just a minute. Rome, we know, is a terrifying empire. If you look at verse 7, that language, Rome was a dreadful empire. Rome was an exceedingly strong empire. We know that the the Persians invented death by crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. They figured out how to exact the maximum amount of pain over the longest amount of time out of a human being. The Roman Empire was ruthless. The Roman Empire was like nothing the world had ever seen before. More to come on on this fourth beast in just a second. But suffice it to say, at this point, we're meant to see that this dream is an absolute nightmare. We're meant to see that evil is grotesque, it's vile, it's terrifying. And if you ever had a 
a dream involving a terrifying monster, one of those that just kept you up at night. You turned the lamps on on your bedside table. My wife's notorious for this. Sometimes, uh, haphazardly, a trailer for a scary movie will come on, and uh, she doesn't mean to see it, but uh, next thing you know, she's up seven, eight times throughout the course of that night, just in a cold sweat, terrified. Other times, she does it to herself. She knows she shouldn't watch a movie trailer, and yet she'll click play, and she'll watch it. And so we have this uh, agreement now. Well, I don't know if she would agree to this, but I've determined that this is how it's going to go, that if she willingly chooses to hit play on movie trailers like that, I'm unscrewing the light bulbs out of all the lamps in our bedroom because I'm not going to suffer for her decision-making in that regard. We've all seen trailers. We've all had dreams like that. Daniel has a dream that doesn't just involve one monster in the closet, not just one monster under the bed, but four, four of these things. And yet, in the midst of this terrifying scene, this is what I love about the Bible, God shows up. All of a sudden, you shift. It's as if you're watching a play with a moving stage. All of a sudden, the stage turns, it rotates, and we get a second scene. All of a sudden, we're in a cosmic courtroom of sorts. Looking at verse 9, he says, As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days referring to God the Father. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, signifying God's perfect purity as well as his eternal wisdom. His throne was fiery flames, Daniel says. Its wheels were burning fire. So you have this similar vision as what you get in Ezekiel chapter 1. You have this image of God as a divine warrior. In Scripture, fire usually means one of two things. Either judgment or purification. And in the context of this scene, it's unquestionably the first of the two. God is on the scene to set things right in the midst of evil rearing its ugly head out of the sea. Which is why the symbolism of purity and wisdom is so critical. If God's on the scene to set things right, it matters that God is pure. It means he always chooses what is right. It matters that God is wise because he has the discernment to distinguish good from evil. In other words, God can be trusted with the gavel in hand. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So you have, you have this incredible scene with thousands upon thousands surrounding the throne in worship, and you have all these kings and kingdoms, all these manifestations of evil standing before the Lord to give account. And Daniel says in verse 11, in light of that, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. There, there's some other takeaways that we'll, we'll look at momentarily as it pertains to verses 11 and 12, but the point for Daniel is pretty simple here as, as we get to this point in this morning's passage. After 70 years of exile, Daniel, you and your friends are not immediately going to experience everything sad coming untrue. The final victory over evil is certain, but it's going to be a while, brother. In some sense, we understand that, right? We, we live during a time in human history when everything sad has not yet come untrue. Jesus has not returned in the fullness of his glory to set all things right. Yet, like Daniel, we can be certain that God will right every wrong and destroy every evil when Christ returns with perfect wisdom 
with perfect discernment, with perfect purity. Speaking of Jesus, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We, we know in light of further biblical revelation that Daniel didn't have in his day that verses 13 and 14 are in fact about Jesus. Jesus used the title son of man to refer to himself more than any other term. Revelation 1 describes Jesus as one like a son of man. The exact same words we get here in verse 13. Remember Jesus' encounter with Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, in light of his betrayal by Judas? Um, We're told this in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. Again, the high priest asked him, Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel here in verse 13, notice, describes the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to be presented before him. So you have God the Son going to God the Father to be presented to him in his glory. This is ascension language. This is Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection ascending to the Father to receive power and glory, a kingdom and a throne. Remember what Philippians 2 says, verses 8 and 11, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, or as verse 14 of Daniel 7 puts it, all peoples, nations, and languages. Remember what what Jesus said as part of the Great Commission just prior to his ascension? All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You you have the defeating of the kingdoms of this world as the authoritative Jesus ascends to his throne. That's what Daniel 7 paints a picture of. And, And yet there's a prolonging of the ultimate defeat of those kingdoms until his second coming. Verse 15. Now we get Daniel's response to this dream. As for me... Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. You, you think? It's like Daniel all of a sudden gets jostled awake in verse 15. He's not sure what to make of what he's seeing. He's clearly shaken up, as we all would be. He's just been given a glimpse of human evil in its most grotesque form, followed by the very throne of God. I think we'd all be shaken up by that kind of unveiling. And then he gets thrown right back in the midst of it. Verse 16, we're right back in the dream. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. In the first half of the book of Daniel, I mentioned this earlier, God had a word for the world. He was always communicating to pagan kings with Daniel as the interpreter. Now God has a word for his own people, and Daniel's the one in need of an interpreter, which is why we get this angelic being in verse 16. You don't want to quit on the book of Daniel when you get to the end of chapter 6 because God has a lot to say for you as the church. 
And here we go. Here's the interpretation. Take another sip of coffee. It's about to get weird. Verse 17. These four great beasts, the angel says, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. There it is. All right. The book of Daniel is incredibly complex. But if you want the, the Cliff's notes on it, you got it right here. Verses 17 and 18 tell you what chapter 7 is about very clearly. The, the beasts represent world powers. They represent evil in all of its forms. And they will not win in the end. Done. We can close up shop and leave right now. And we understand Daniel chapter 7 in terms of, of the simple, clear point being communicated. It's meant to bring comfort. This is a declaration that God will ultimately emerge victorious over evil. Over evil outside of us culturally and over the evil within us as it pertains to our own sin. God is the one whose kingdom will never end. You want to be on his side in this eternal battle uh, against the cosmic forces of darkness. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, know this. The kingdoms of this world are beastly, as is the sin in our hearts, but God is greater in Christ. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the most. Most high, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So, so Daniel simply asking uh, this angelic mediator to tie up a loose end for him. Hey, what's the story with that fourth beast? That thing's pretty creepy. That thing's pretty terrifying. What's the skinny on that? What's the scoop? Verse twenty-three. Thus he said, "This is the angel speaking." As for the fourth beast. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times of the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. These are not verses that are easy to make sense of. Um, if you believe, like me, that the fourth beast represents Rome, then this horn that the dream uh, brings to bear is likely a representation of Titus, a Roman general who mocked Israel by worshiping Roman gods in the temple in Jerusalem around the time that uh, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in AD 70. Some interpreters believe that the horn represents a leader who came a couple hundred years before Jesus, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Try to say that one three times fast. This is a guy who, who went so far as to have coins made that declared on them him to be, quote, God manifest. Other interpreters believe the horn refers to some future antichrist, some future uh, evil ruler who will make Nebuchadnezzar look like a fluffy bunny in comparison to whoever this man or woman is going to be. And that may be part of the interpretation. We just don't know. That's where you can't 
suppress the symbolism too much. In fact, in apocalyptic literature, this is something that I did not mention earlier, images or figures can apply to more than one period of history. And so we have to be careful not to press the imagery too far. I personally think that those four beasts, as I mentioned before, represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That makes the most sense to me in light of chapter 2, in light of some things that we're even going to see next week in chapter 8. But that's not ultimately what's most important when you read Daniel chapter 7. What's most important is that no matter what beastly powers may arise, God's kingdom will win. Do you believe that this morning? That's what verses 26 and 27 are all about. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. This final horn, this final beast, this final depiction of evil. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The, The angel is basically saying, Listen, Daniel, I know you're intrigued by the whole horn thing. We do it all the time in the church, don't we? We take secondary matters and we make them primary. We take passages like this and we completely miss the glory and splendor and victory of the God of the universe for the sake of pie graphs and charts and calendars. The angel says, Daniel, I know you're intrigued by this whole horn thing, but don't miss it. Don't miss the bigger picture. God will crush evil forever, including the evil in your own heart. Now, you think that Daniel would be stoked as we close out this chapter, wouldn't you? He sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great authority. That's cool. He sees God's ultimate victory over all the forces of evil. That's pretty cool, too. But look at how the chapter ends, verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. This is Daniel speaking. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Like many of of us this morning, Daniel's not living in the world of pretend. There are a lot of church people who do that. They live as if they're in some alternate universe. He's not minimizing the reality of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world. He understands that deliverance is going to come, but he also understands that it's not going to happen overnight, that life is not going to be easy, that the Christian life doesn't just do away with all of your problems. We still live in a fallen, broken world where everything is not as it should be. Daniel waited for the first coming of Christ. We wait for the second coming of Christ. In both cases, we long. We long for everything to be set right. Seeing the war for what it truly is, as as the curtain gets peeled back, as we're going to see over the next several weeks, it has a way of sobering you. Yes, it's encouraging, but it's also sobering. We long for that day as a result of seeing evil for what it truly is. We long for a day in which everything sad will really become untrue. That's where Daniel finds himself at the end of of chapter 7. And so I think the question for us is, where, where do you find yourself? I mean, we've We've asked this question every week in this series practically. So what? What does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? What can we learn from such a a vivid, complex passage of Scripture? Well, let me just throw out a couple of things. Number one, the beast-like presence of evil is real. We we can try to sweep it under the rug all we want, but it is real. And and we're we're not just talking about the four empires depicted in Daniel chapter 7. Though 
there was a grotesque evil about those empires in many ways. Human history since those empires has been filled with monstrous villains, hasn't it? From Nero and Domitian to Hitler and Stalin and everyone in between. Even present tense, there are people all around the globe right now, Christians who are being persecuted unto death at the hands of God-opposing monsters in places like Sudan and North Korea. It's a real thing. There have historically been and will continue to be evil regimes that exist throughout the world. But what about us? I mean, my guess is you're probably not terrified to go to your car when the service is over. You're probably not anticipating martyrdom on your way home today. Where do we see the beast-like presence of evil lurking in our midst? Well, from a cultural vantage point, we see traces of it all around us, don't we? I mean, this isn't an exhaustive list by any stretch. It comes in the form of religious relativism, the abandonment of absolute truth for this idea that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and all of a sudden there is no truth. It comes in the form of the mass killing of unborn image bearers of God. Evil comes in the form of idol worship, from food to college football to sex to family to money. Evil comes in the form of moralistic self-righteousness here in the Bible Belt. And on and on we could go. And it would be very easy to respond. Yeah, you tell them, Pastor. Yeah, we, we do live in, a, in an increasingly corrupt society. And people need to get their eyes open and see it for what it really is. But here's where we need to be incredibly careful coming out of Daniel chapter 7. Perhaps the most dangerous thing that we could do this morning is to fail to acknowledge the reality that the beast-like presence of evil lurks within So that even the Apostle Paul, a man who deeply loved Jesus, could declare himself to be the chief of sinners. The Bible says the human heart is wicked, deceitful above all things. Tremper Longman says in his commentary, The picture of the beast in Daniel 7 is consistent with the lesson we learn throughout the Bible. Every man and woman at heart is a self-seeking rebel against God. And we would crawl over the bodies of our fellow human beings in order to seek some small advantage for ourselves. That's so sobering. It's the Apostle Paul's indictment on all mankind in Romans 3. There's no one who's righteous. Not one. None who seeks after God. None who does good. Longman goes on to say, the beast is in the heart of each one of us. We must call evil, evil. But as part of that, we've got to be willing to acknowledge the sin in our own lives. As part of that. I think this passage invites us to introspectively look at our own hearts and to turn to the Lord in repentance. Which leads me to the second truth. The encouraging truth. Yes, the beast-like presence of evil is real. But, but, God is good and good will win in the end. Let me say that again. The beast-like presence of evil is real, but God is good, and good will win in the end. God will emerge victorious. He will. This passage brings us back to the gospel yet again, does it not? The victory of the Son of Man over the vilest of beasts, the serpent himself. Remember Genesis 3 going back to the garden in the beginning, the promise that God would send a hero to crush the serpent Satan's head? The death blow we know to Satan and to the sin in our own hearts was delivered at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 puts it this way. Jesus, uh, or, or excuse me, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. That's what we call the doctrine of Christus victor, Christ our victor. Jesus is our victory over the powers of evil, namely Satan and his demons and the sin of our own hearts. The Bible tells us that the death blow has been delivered and the victory is certain. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and when he returns, he will do away with the beast, Satan himself, forever. The the book of Revelation, again, another uh, book that drives at apocalyptic genre, tells us how the story ends. It it tells, once again, of a beast emerging from the sea, similar to Daniel's vision. A beast that will be cast into the lake of fire, never to be seen by God's people ever again. It's an incredibly glorious ending, isn't it? I said this last week at a conference I spoke at, and I'll say it again today. Every good fairy tale has a king and a kingdom and a damsel in distress. And Jesus is the king of this real-life fairy tale. The ultimate dragon slayer, you could say. This is immensely encouraging, Daniel chapter 7. Rather than speculating with charts and graphs in hand when Jesus will return, we have a declaration that Jesus is seated on his throne in full control. No matter our circumstances, no matter how deeply entrenched you find yourself in sin, no matter how much evil lurks around you culturally, Jesus is in control and he will win over your sin, over the evil that exists outside of you and within you. That's the gloriously beautiful truth of Daniel chapter 7. If you're not a Christian, as we close this morning, let, let, me, let me just throw something out there. Coming back to verses 9 and 10, and I'm not trying to scare you. I just want to ask you an honest question. When you look at verses 9 and 10, you see God seated uh, with gavel in hand in, in his cosmic courtroom, if it's true that God is the perfect, wise, just judge of the universe, what would you say to him if the book on your life were opened and presented to him today? What would you say? See, see, my guess is that a lot of people brought in a moralistic bent this morning. Unless you live in a monastery or a cave, you, you've seen what's unfolded on the political trail. And now it's all of a sudden, well, this person's more moral than this one. And this one's, you know, uh, far more uh, debaucherous than, than this person. And it becomes a, a good guys and bad guys kind of a conversation as everything gets laid bare for the world to see in all of its nastiness. The gospel doesn't say there are good guys and bad guys. The gospel says there are bad guys and Jesus who came to die for bad guys. And that every one of us is going to have our WikiLeaks moment before the God of the universe. And the question is, what are you going to do when that day comes? What are you going to present to the Lord as evidence? If you're trusting in your own moral efforts, how do you know when you've done enough? How do you sleep at night? The beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to speculate. If you're a Christian, you know that it's not about exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C and exhibit D. It's only about exhibit A, which is the blood of Jesus, and there is no exhibit B. It's Christ and Christ alone that we plead on on behalf of for salvation. It's his blood that we trust in. He came and lived the life that we could never live. WikiLeaks could find nothing on Jesus. He's perfect, sinless. 
He died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death. And he did ascend on the clouds to the right hand of God the Father. And he will return to make everything sad, untrue. And this is not just a a truth that non-Christians need to grab hold of as they turn to Christ for hope and salvation. This is a truth that all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, need to grab hold of this morning. I don't know about you, but but I veer often into the realm of self-wrought righteousness. All the time, I have this default bent because I grew up in the Bible Belt to veer into that ditch constantly. So that I need to preach the gospel to myself constantly. Let me just share you one way that I do that. That connects the dots to this cosmic courtroom kind of language. We're going to sing this song in a moment. I love it. It is gloriously beautiful because it is gospel uh, saturated. And it says this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Christ is my evidence, my exhibit A, my only exhibit for hope. He goes on to say, when Satan tempts me to despair, that happens to me all the time, and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on who? To look on Jamie? No. To look on Jesus and his blood and pardon me. That's crazy. That's the gospel. You can stand before the perfect God of the universe blameless, not because you are, but because Christ is for you. That's unbelievable. If you're a Christian, soak in that truth this morning, especially those of you who are prone to veer into the ditch of self-wrought righteousness, those of you like me who are prone to, to veer into the paradigm of thinking that believes there are good guys and bad guys rather than bad guys and Jesus, who's the only hero in this Uh, divine redemptive historical narrative and let's not only celebrate christ our righteousness this morning but also christ our hope i'll leave you with this quote from ian dugid this morning he says this today we live in a world of terrifying beasts but we shall not live in their world forever there will come a day when all wrongs will be set right when all tyrants will be dethroned when all that is broken will be fixed There will come a day when all hunger will come to an end, when all sickness will be cured, when every sorrowing heart will be comforted. There will come a day when even death, the last weapon of the beast, will have its power broken once and for all. On that day, the great beast, Satan himself, will be bound and brought before the throne. He will answer for his crimes and be cast into the lake of fire forever. Christ is not only our righteousness he is our hope he is our victory and that victory is certain hope in christ will not disappoint in the end in a moment we're going to take communion if you're a christian this meal is for you we take the bread and dip it in the cup the bread representing the broken body of jesus the cup representing his shed blood as you prepare to receive of communion i would invite you to introspectively uh, look at your life look at your heart and ask god where the evil lurks within I mean, it's really easy to point the finger at everything outside of us, to blame the devil, to blame culture and and anything and everything else. It's a far altogether different thing to sit with self and to ask God how he wants to conform us into the image of his son.
So let's do that, but let's not stay there. Let's also look to the blood of Jesus, um, which speaks hope into the midst of the vilest of sinners' lives. And, And I can declare, I don't know about you, with the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. I think I have him beat. Thanks be to Christ for his life, death, and resurrection. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.